Amen. All right, I'm going to ask you to turn your Bibles to Exodus chapter 20. Exodus chapter 20, we're going to be looking at verses 4 through 6 today. So we work our way through the Ten Commandments and working our way through the book of Exodus. For those who are new to OPBC or haven't been around in a while, um, we're just working our way book by book, verse by verse, chapter by chapter through Scripture. So we believe it is all the inspired and errant Word of God. We believe, we, we believe it is our authority um, and the authority over our lives. It's also the way we know Jesus. So we can sing all we want to about wanting to know Jesus more. But to know Jesus more, we're going to have to go to God's Word. God has spoken, and we want to hear from Him. So today we open to Exodus chapter 20. Pastor Kenny was saying just a little while ago to me that he can't wait till I get to, like, you shall not steal, because that's going to be like a super, super quick sermon. Um, but we're, you know, he's like, what do, what do you do with that? Don't do it. Well, you know me. I can get 35 minutes out of anything, so we'll be fine, right? Today, we're looking at the second commandment. Last week, we looked at kind of a, a framework for how we're going to be looking at each of the commandments and, and how we're going to apply them to our lives. There, there are certain things we need to do to understand, to interpret, and to apply the commandments. We're going to be looking at the whole Bible. Now, when it comes to idolatry, there are hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of verses, so I promise I won't go to all of them. I'll go to about five. We're going to be looking at negative and positive realities of each of the commandments. Whenever God says not to do something, he is expecting us also to do something all right so if he says you should have no other gods before me he's expecting us to only have him as our god we're going to be looking also at the fact that there are internal and external realities that though the the bible when you read it through with the ten commandments seems very external thou shalt not kill thou shalt not steal thou shalt not all the all those things right jesus took them to the heart he said, I, you've heard it said you should not commit murder. I tell you if you hate, right? So we have to deal with the external and internal realities of each of the laws. So that's kind of the framework we're using as we work our way through the Ten Commandments. I pray it's refreshing for you because these commandments are not supposed to be for believers. This heavy burden instead because of Jesus Christ who has fulfilled the law, who has kept the whole law and has died in our place because we couldn't keep the law. We now are set free. And this law should, should be freedom for us. It should be really a fence that sets us free so that we're obeying and honoring God. So you, you read through the commandments, and last week we said this. This is what verse 3 says, you shall have no other gods before me. Now, Roman Catholics would tend to go on to verse 4 and say that's part of the first commandment, and then they'd split the tenth commandment into two commandments. But I, I see very clearly there another you shall not or you shall make, right? There's an obvious command here, and so we as Protestants tend to take this as the second command. And the reason some people get confused here is because the second command seems very much like the first command, right? You shall have no other gods before me. And then he comes back and he says, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Here we see really a distinction from the first commandment. The first commandment is, which God are you going to worship? The second commandment is, how are you going to worship that God in the right way? 
We want to make sure we're worshiping the, the right God in the right way. It is possible to have one God, but to worship him in a way that doesn't honor him as God. It is possible to know that God is the one true God and then worship him in a way that doesn't honor him. And I want us to realize that today. I want us to deal with that reality in our own hearts. And and the way we do that first is by coming to the Word and seeing what the command is. And I see four parts to this command, basically. There's a what, there's a why, there's an if, and there's a but. There's a what, there's a why, there's an if, and there's a but. As we look at this command, we're going to see the what. He says, worship no graven image. It's not... This isn't a command against painting and carpentry and carving or anything of the sort. No, artistry is something that God celebrates. In fact, when he gives commands on how he's going to be worshipped within the tabernacle and the temple, he takes the best artisans, the best of the artwork, the best of the craftsmen, and he uses them. So he wants us to be crafty. He wants us... To be creative. No, this isn't an issue of making something. It's an issue of making something to worship it. It's an issue of making something to represent God. Because God cannot be bound up in wood, stone, or gold and silver. So the what of the command is worship no graven image. Something grafted by a tool, made and shaped by human hands. A made representation of a divine being. Don't do that. No, because no images of created beings can represent God. And so if God is the creator and he created everything that we see to take one of those created things and try to fashion something that represented God would make no sense because it'll never add up. It's lesser than nothing in the sky, the earth or the sea. The command tells us can be used as a representation of God. So that's the what of the command. The why of the command is because he's a jealous God. Now, jealousy gets a bad rap in my mind. I'm a pretty jealous husband, and I think my wife is better off because of it. I do. I think I can love her better than any other man could ever love her because I know her. And God gives me grace to do that, and he's put us together in a covenant relationship. And I'm jealous for her love. There's a zeal that God has for his people, a zeal that God has for his glory, a zeal that God has for love, that he loves his people with a, with a sacrificing fatherly love, and he expects love in return. He tells us that all of the commandments can be summed up in love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, so, and love your neighbor as yourself. So all the commandments come back to the zeal and this jealous nature of God that he is our God, we are his people. He doesn't want us to have any other lovers. He doesn't want us to go after anything less. He knows he's the best. And he's the best for us. And so he wants the best for us. The what? Worship no graven image. The why? The jealousy of God. The if? Well, there's generational warnings of God's punishment. Look at the text. Look what it says. I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me. He literally says, if you prop up idols to represent me, I take it as hate. You hate me. You don't love me. You hate me. If you if you prop up something to represent me that is lesser than me, 
you hate me. And, and he's saying here the sins of the fathers are going to be visited on future generations. At its essence, what he's saying is that God is holding families responsible for how they conduct themselves as families. God holds us responsible for how we lead our children and our grandchildren. God holds us responsible for what we teach our kids about God by what we value and what we place in a, in a place in our lives of importance. God God's whole, holds us responsible because God is a covenant God. He, he has a familial relationship with his children. And he expects of us to teach the next generation of who God really is. And, and before you think that that doesn't sound fair, that the father can sin, so all of the iniquity is visited on the children to the third and fourth generation, check out the text. They hate him too. So it's not as if he's punishing those who aren't guilty. You've seen this in people's lives, right? You've seen this played out, that when a father makes a mistake or goes the wrong way and leads his family in a way, his kids take it and they just run down that path. And then the grandkids just follow down that path. And it's usually not doing the same thing. It's usually down the slippery slope, right? It's down a slippery slope to worse and worse and worse and worse and worse. And you see it in the history of the people of Israel. And constantly the prophets are hearkening back to, hey, when you were in the desert, you were doing this too. And generation after generation after generation comes and goes, and God's name is defamed among the generations. We've seen this happen in people's lives. We've seen this happen in families. But notice what he says here. He says to the third or fourth generation. He doesn't say that it has to be perpetual. He doesn't say that it has to be forever. This isn't an eternal reality. God is not going to remain angry forever. Instead, he pours out grace. Just look at the text. It's so amazing to see the grace here. These are people that hate me, he says, but I show steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. There is a chance to change the narrative. There is a chance to break the cycle. God is a covenant God, and God punishes the guilty. God's warning is for three or four generations, but... And there's the, the but. God also has an everlasting covenant of his grace. God's everlasting covenant of his grace is to thousands. And another way of reading that would be to thousands of generations. So while three or four might feel his anger and wrath, a thousands of generations. This eternal covenant. The hope is that God interrupts our history. That's what he's done to the Israelites here, isn't it? They had a history that was full of enslavement, a history that was, that was bound up in the enslavement to sin and a physical enslavement, and God interrupted their history by his grace. That's what we need. What we need is God to interrupt our history. Fathers, dads, grandfathers, grandmothers, moms. We need God to interrupt the cycles that we have found ourselves in. How easy is it for us to look back and say, well, that's the way my parents did it. That's the way my grandparents did it. That's my people. That's how we are. And I want, to, I want you to understand that we are not, as believers, we are not a people who put our hope in our heritage. We honor our heritage. It's okay to love your parents, and it's okay to love your grandparents. It's okay to look at them. But let's just be honest. They jack some stuff up. Let's not... Let's not just make this little rose-colored glasses look at the past. 
People like to talk about the good old days, the golden days. I'm not sure how gold they were. So let's be honest. We as believers are not a people who put our hope in our heritage. We are a people who put our hope in the future. We look back at a heritage of Jesus dying on the cross because we were sinners. That was our heritage. Before Christ, our heritage was lost and dead in trespasses and sins. Now we put our hope in a city that's coming. A future that's true and real. A future full of justice and love. A future that really gives us hope. So the commands here are meant to push us forward, to push us upward to God, not to what he's created, and push us forward to being with him forever, to being his people in an everlasting covenant. These are the four parts of the command. So how do we begin to apply this to our lives? How do we begin to understand what this means today? Because we're thousands of years removed from the giving of this law. We're not standing in front of a giant mountain with lightning and thunder and smoke. So what do we do with this? I mean, it'd be easy for me, I would think, in front of a mountain where there's lightning, thunder, and smoke to go, oh, you don't want me, okay, you don't want me to, like, make anything to worship you? That's cool. Can I just stay here at the mountain? Because that sounds like a really good place to get to know you. It'd be really easy for me. But how easy was it for the Israelites? It didn't take long before they were like, hey, Aaron, here's all of our gold. Can you make a calf for us? We can't bear with God as he is. Can you make him into something we can handle? See, immediately we can begin to look at the application here. Immediately we can begin to turn the corner to how this applies to our lives. So first what we want to do is we want to see what the whole Bible says. As I said, there are hundreds of passages of Scripture from God's commands and the law through the Psalms, through the prophets, into the letters and the Gospels. The fact is, idolatry is throughout the entire Bible because, honestly, it is the heartbeat of all other sin. When we take God and we try to make him manageable, make him into something we can understand, something we can manipulate, something we can handle, this is the heart of all sin. But I want you today to see just in five realities the folly of idolatry. Idolatry is stupid. Everybody say that after me. Idolatry is stupid. You didn't say it. I want you to say it after me. Idolatry is stupid. Okay, here's why idolatry is stupid. Tell us, Brad, why is idolatry stupid? First, Genesis 1, 26 through 27 says this. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Why would we need to make the image of God when he's already done it? Idolatry is stupid. God has already created God's image. He's imprinted it on you and on me. For us to take anything less than that would be stupid. He's already done it. We don't need to create God's image. The, the second reason I think idolatry is, is foolish, you guys like the word foolish better than stupid, I'm guessing, right? Idols serve as really poor mediators. Now, Remember the Israelites had just come out of Egypt, right? And in Egypt, they have this plethora of idols and gods, right? They have all of these gods, the God of the sun, the God of the crops, the God of the Nile, the God of the everything. They have a God for everything. And they had idols that represented these gods. And none of the Egyptians actually thought that the gods resided inside those gold, stone, and wood idols. Nobody thinks that when they 
fashion an idol that the God actually lives inside the idol. What they look at with the idol is they say, that's a mediator between me and the God. I use this, I bow down to it, and it brings me into the presence of the God, or it gets me to the place where I need to be so that I can get something from that God. The problem with that is, as Christians, we already have a mediator. We don't need another mediator. We don't need something less. Our mediator is Jesus, First Timothy chapter 2. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. So people will take wooden and golden and stone idols, and they'll, they'll sacrifice to those idols and the gods that those idols represent when we already have a mediator who has accomplished everything for us to come into the presence of the one true God. Why, why would we settle for something less? Why would we go after something lesser? And the reason they're poor mediators is the third thing. Idols are made by human hands, so they hold no power. Idols are cut out of a tree. Isaiah 44 puts it this way, and I think, it's fashion, I think it's a fantastic way of thinking about it, right? All who fashion idols are nothing. You guys think I'm blunt? This is Isaiah. All who fashion idols are nothing, and the things they delight in do not profit. And he goes on to talk about all of the realities of when you make a uh, an idol that ultimately when you really do meet God, you become terrified. And this is the reason. This is what happens when we make an idol. It says, all right, the carpenter stretches out a line. He marks it out with a pencil. He shapes it with planes and marks it with a compass. He shapes it into the figure of a man with the beauty of a man to dwell in a house. He cuts down cedars or he chooses a cypress tree or an oak and Let's it grow strong among the trees of the forest. He plants a cedar and the rain nourishes it. Then it becomes fuel for a man. He takes a part of it and warms himself. He kindles a fire and bakes bread. Then he makes a god and worships it. He makes it an idol and falls down before it. Half of it he burns in the fire. Over the half he eats meat. He roasts it and is satisfied. Also he warms himself and says, Aha, I am warm. I have seen the fire. And the rest of it he makes into a god, his idol, and falls down to it and worships it. He's literally worshiping ashes, is the argument Isaiah is making. He takes the same tree, half of it he uses to make his meal. And to keep himself warm, the other is supposed to nourish his soul somehow? Do we understand that nothing that God has created could ever replace the God who created it? And so he says, don't make any graven image. Don't make any graven idol, because they hold no power. The fourth reality I want you to see is this. As we look at the whole Bible, idols are insufficient to meet our needs or to describe God. In Acts chapter 17, the Apostle Paul goes into Athens, and in Athens he walks through and he sees, and I've been to Athens, there are idols everywhere. There are inscriptions to gods everywhere. And imagine what it was like 2,000 years ago before everything began to crumble. And he's walking through and he stands there in front of the people and he says, I see that you have a lot of gods. But I noticed as I was walking through, you're very spiritual, but I noticed this. There is an inscription to one that says, to the unknown God. And he begins to tell them, the unknown God can be known. 
But I just want you to think about that. They, they had all of these idols and all of these gods, and they had to come back to this, but we really don't know who he is. The insufficiency of idols in and of themselves to help us know who God is, to describe God or to meet our needs. Idols are insufficient to meet our needs or to describe God. So it would be foolish if you know something's not going to meet your needs. It would be foolish to run after it. And finally, I want you to see this. And this is at the heart of all sin. Idols exchange true glory for lesser glory. Isn't that what Romans 1 teaches us is at the heartbeat of all sin? The heartbeat of all of the problems we have between us and God is this. We know that God exists. And verse 21 says this, although they knew God, although they knew there was one God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking. They became smarter than they, they became dumber than they thought they were. They thought they were pretty smart, but they were too big for their britches is the idea. They became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. This is the heartbeat of our sin problem is that we want to make God into something that we can manage. Ultimately, idols draw us farther away from God than they could ever draw us closer. So there's a foolishness that the Bible speaks of over and over and over again. And God is not going to stand for his people to represent him in a way that doesn't give honor and glory that he is due. So there are negative and positive realities to this. He tells us very plainly in the text here. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above. You shall not bow down to them or give them worship or serve them. You shall not do this with an idol. So what does he want us to do? What he wants us to do is worship him in the way that he requires and deserves. Don't worship idols that represent God. Do worship God the way he requires and deserves. We want to make sure we're honoring God in the way we worship. And the way to honor God in the way we worship, the easiest way to do it is for God to tell us how he wants to be worshipped. Wouldn't that be nice? Wouldn't that be nice if God actually just spoke and told us how he wanted to be worshipped? Wouldn't it be nice if God spoke and told us how he wants to be worshipped. They would give us, I don't know, like write it down in a book. And give us instructions on how we're to know him and how we're to worship him and how we're to honor him. He has spoken to us. He has given us his word. He wants, in fact, the rest of the law is going to be telling his people, okay, you have one true God, no idols, here's how you worship me. He's going to tell them what to do, what not to do. There's an entire sacrificial system he sets up in the Old Covenant so that he is worshipped appropriately. And now Jesus comes and tells us this. He's talking to a woman at the well in John chapter 4. And she says, hey, you guys say that we're supposed to worship in Jerusalem. My guys say I'm supposed to worship on this, up on this hill. So which one is it? I, I, I see that you're a prophet, so you tell me which one it is. And he says this. Jesus says this very plainly. There's coming a day when you won't worship there and you won't worship in Jerusalem. But if you're going to worship God as he deserves and he re requires and he desires, you will worship in spirit and in truth. 
So the first thing I want you to see, if we're going to worship God, we have to reflect the nature of God. Our worship should reflect the nature of God. I think too often when it comes to worship, our worship is reflecting our nature more than it's reflecting God's nature. We worship the way we feel comfortable. The way Worship should make you a little, make you feel a little uncomfortable. But our tendency is to run after things that are comfortable for us. But if we're going to worship God in spirit and in truth, we have to understand that God is spirit and should be worshipped in spirit and in truth. He didn't just say that because it sounds really good. He said it because he is a spirit and you can't worship him in a physical way and actually actually accomplish worship that pleases him. We have to understand that in his nature, in his very nature, God is free and not bound by human creation. So we don't make something out of creation because you can't bind God up within stone, wood, gold, anything that has been made. He made us. Isaiah 45 tells us that we are the made ones. He made us. And so we don't get to remake him or complain about how he made us. Our worship should reflect the character, the nature of God, but our worship should also reflect the worthiness of God. When he says, don't make idols, don't worship idols, he's also telling us, when you worship the one true God, make sure you're showing how worthy I am. And no gold, no stone, no wood can demonstrate his worthiness. No, we see him as creator. We see him as holy. In Revelation chapter 4, when all of this goes away, right, we're going to see. We see in Revelation chapter 4 a picture of what true worship looks like. And it says this, And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. And day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. They worship him as worthy because he is holy. And it goes on, and whenever the living creature gives, living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne saying, worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things and by your will they existed and were created. How could you ever worship the creator by trying to fit him into a creation? Uh, We worship him in his worthiness because he is the creator, because he is holy. Our worship should reflect the character of God, the worthiness of God, and the authority of God. He decides how he will be worshipped. Doesn't that make sense? If he's God, like who else should decide how God should be worshipped but God? So as soon as I start deciding things for God, he's not really God. But man, we're really good at deciding what we think God might like. Any husbands in the room ever made that mistake with your wife? Yeah, I think my wife might really like this without having listened to her, seen what she doesn't like, given her a gift. Any husband, any husband out here ever given a gift your husband, your wife did not like? Raise your hand if you've given a. Okay, so you know what I'm talking about. Okay, some of you are just better husbands than we are, or lying, one or the other. I'm not sure, but that's kind of the way it works. 
But the fact is, we when we don't listen to the person we're bringing something to, we might bring them the wrong thing. We, we set ourselves up as the authority, but God is the authority, and our worship should reflect His authority. So He's decided how He wants to be worshipped, how He will be worshipped in a way that pleases Him. And He says, love me with your whole being. That's how you worship me. God desires our whole selves. We cannot compartmentalize God. No, we need God to speak to us so that we can know him and we can worship him as he desires. And so he provides the means and the methods of worship in his word. We're going to read about those over the next few chapters to see how God reveals himself in worship so that he can be worshiped correctly. John Stott put it this way. God must speak to us before we have any liberty to speak to him. He must disclose to us who he is before we can offer him what we are in acceptable worship. The worship of God is always a response to the word of God. Scripture wonderfully directs and enriches our worship. And that leads me to the final applications for us. The external and internal realities of this law. I'm guessing, I'm just guessing, looking at the crowd we have here today, that if I went into your homes on a Tuesday morning, you're not bowing down to something that you carved. Just guessing, right? I might be wrong, and if I'm wrong, stop. Okay, that's the first application. Just don't do that. So I'm guessing that you're probably listening to this. Well, good, I don't have any idols. I don't have any, anything that I've carved that I'm worshiping. I want to make sure we understand the heart behind this because it is still possible to know there is one God and worship him in a way that doesn't honor him and please him. So let's, let's see what that looks like. The first thing I would say is this. In the nature of this command, don't make anything visual, anything out of creation to worship. Don't represent God in a way that is with a created thing, I hear this. Our worship should be by hearing, not by sight. When God showed up on the mountain, he did not show himself in physical form. He spoke. Jesus himself is the word made flesh. So in Jesus, we see the spoken word becoming a physical word. We actually see, as we'll talk about in a moment, the fulfillment of this commandment. I want you to understand this. God speaks so that we know him. God speaks so that we worship him appropriately. Worship must be word-centered, not image-centered, which is why we spend most of our time when we gather on Sunday morning hearing from God's word. We need God to speak. We need God to speak much more than we need to talk to God. Life is found in these words, and we need to hear from him. Our worship must be word-centered, not image-centered. God doesn't want us to look, Philip Graham Ryken says. He wants us to listen. He wants us to listen. He wants us to hear and obey. Romans ten seventeen puts this pretty plainly. Faith comes by really cool graphics on Sunday mornings and the best website. No, faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. Our worship must be by hearing, not by sight. Look, I want you to understand this. When you leave here on a Sunday morning, 
I don't want you more wowed by the tent and more wowed by the show than you are by God. When you get in your cars and you drive home, the only wow I want going through your mind and heart is how great is our God. I want you wowed by Jesus every Sunday, not wowed by a production that we can put on. And that doesn't mean that we're going to do things like we're not going to do like things in a really poor way. We're going to always try to do things with excellence to honor the Lord with what he's given us. But, oh, it would be a shame if you walked away saying how great anything other than Jesus is when you walk away from OPBC on a Sunday morning. Our desire is for you to see how great he is. And so we need to hear from him. Our worship should be by hearing, not by sight. Our worship must not be to a God we can manipulate. He says, don't make anything and don't bow down to anything that you've made to represent God. We need to be like the psalmist in Psalm 115. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory for the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. Why should the nation say, where is their God? Our God is in the heavens. He's not in an idol. He does all that he pleases. They're idols that try to bring God closer, silver and gold. The work of human hands. They have mouths but do not speak, eyes but do not see. They have ears but do not hear, noses but do not smell. They have hands but do not feel, feet but do not walk. And then they do not make a sound in their throat. They don't speak. Our God speaks. Those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. Our worship must not be to a God we can manipulate, and that is the essence of making an idol. We're trying to bring him down to a place where we can handle him and understand him. Hey, if you can fully understand God, he's not God. If you can fully comprehend the incomprehensible, he's not God. If you can fully attain to the full knowledge of everything about God, you must be dead and in heaven right now. If your God always agrees with you, has all the exact political views you have, right? Thinks about all the people around you the same way you do. If your God never disagrees with you and never convicts you, he's not God. No, we don't manipulate God. We don't worship a God that can be manipulated. We don't have a God who is a genie or a vending machine where we just pop our money in and hope to get what we want out. And, and I'm, I kind of hear it this way from people. Well, if I just pray hard enough, if I keep my vow, if I give enough, if I hold my mouth right, close my eyes tight enough, say in Jesus' name at the end of every prayer. No. God wants to be trusted and obeyed, not used as a tool to get what we desire. So we need to hear him. And we need to worship him as the King of kings and Lord of lords. Our worship must be of God as he is, not as what we wish he was. This is the very nature of idolatry. We make God into what we wish he was. We, but I want you to know you can't worship God for some of his attributes and not for others. You can't say, I really like God for his grace and his mercy. Not really big on the whole, like justice and wrath thing. I want you to know without the justice and wrath, none of us are forgiven. 
It was his justice that sent Jesus to the cross because he wasn't going to let sin go unpunished. It was his wrath against sin that was poured out on Jesus fully and finally. And because of what Jesus did in giving his perfect life in your place and in my place, now we don't experience the wrath of God. So I'm a fan of justice and wrath because it was poured out on Jesus. But we don't get to worship God for what we like about God and then maximize those things and minimize the rest. One way that might happen in your life is you might have a tendency to say something like this. I like to think of God as, just go ahead and stop yourself right there. God has revealed himself in his word. Let's get to know him there. We worship God on his terms, not ours. That's what makes him God, not us. If I were to boil all of this down, and this would be my last real point as we close, and Danny's going to come up here and help us lead a final song. One of the reasons idolatry is so heinous is this. We're the ones who need to be remade in his image, not the other way around. Anytime we fashion an idol, we're making God in our image, not being made in his image. God created us in his image to reflect his image. Our sin has made that difficult, if not impossible. We are not permitted to make something now in God's image, but only to be God's image. God wants his image revealed and restored in you. So God sent his son, Jesus, the image of the father. We read that earlier in Colossians chapter one to restore God's image in us. Hebrews one, three says he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. We need to be remade in his image, not the other way around. Jesus becomes the fulfillment of this second commandment. The word made flesh. The exact imprint of the nature of the father. Who holds all things together, the first, the last, the beginning and the end. We don't need pictures to help us worship. We don't need crucifixes and statues. We don't need icons. We have Jesus. And in Jesus, we see the Father. He himself said it. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. So you want to know what God is like? Look to Jesus. We need nothing more. And we can have nothing less then Jesus is the object of our worship. So whatever the idols are, whatever the things that we've made to help represent God, the call on our lives today is to worship God, the one true God, in the way that he deserves and requires. Not to worship him in a way that makes us comfortable, worship him in a way that makes us feel great every Sunday when we go home, but to worship him in a way that gives him the glory he is due and he deserves. So, Father, I pray now that we would look to Jesus and everything else would be stripped away. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.
said the sound of lights in place That's the measure you must take To crush the idols Jerk the pews and all the decorations too Until the congregation's few Then have revival Tell your friends that this is where the party ends Until you're broken for your sins You can't be social Seek the Lord and wait for what He has in store And know that great is your reward So just be hopeful Cause you can sing all you want to Yes, you can Sing all you want to. You can sing all you want to and still get it wrong. Worship is more than a song. Take a break from all the plans that you have made and sit at home God to whisper, beg and please to open up his mouth and speak, and pray for real upon your knees until they blister. Shine the light on every corner of your life until the lost and bright and lies are in the open. Read the word and put to test the things you've heard Until your heart and soul are stirred and rocked and broken Cause you can sing all you want to Yes, you can sing all you want to You can sing all you want to and still get it wrong Worship is more than a song. Anything I put before my God is an idol. And anything I want with all my heart is an idol Anything I can't stop thinking of is an idol Anything that I can all my love is an idol We must not worship Something that's not even worth it. Clear the stage, make some space for the one who deserves it. And I can sing all I want to. Yes, I can. Sing all I want to. I can sing all I want.